Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. So we'll be in Ruth chapter 1 tonight. We're going to look at Ruth uh, next Wednesday night. Lord willing, we'll be looking at the couple of Ananias and Sapphira out of Acts chapter 5. So make sure and bring your tithe money um, next next Wednesday night when we, uh, when we start talking about them. And then after that, if there's other names that you would like for us to focus on, you just got to tell me. Um, that would be the last set of names that I have been asked to look at. So if I don't have any more names after that, I may go off in a different direction on Wednesday nights, and so if there's any other names um, besides these, that, that next couple, you just left to let me know. I would be happy to try to include them and for us to spend some time looking at them on a Wednesday night. So, here we are at Ruth. Same story all along. We ask three questions. Who was she? Why do we know her? And what lessons does she teach us? So, Ruth, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you get to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel. Kings, First Saint Chronicles. So you have Ruth that is tied right in there. Um, it's happening during the days of the judges. That's what it says in Ruth chapter one and verse one. In the days when the judges ruled. So that's why it's put in your Bible canonically. That's why it's put right after Judges because it follows in the same timeline. All right. So what do we know? What do we know about Ruth? We asked three questions. Who was she? What, why do we know her? What lessons does she teach us? So who was she? Talk about biographical. Husband, mother, father, sister, brother, son, child. What do we know about her? She was a widow. She was a widow. All right. Her husband's name was Milan. Her husband's name was? Mahalon. M-A-H. Yeah, wagon wheel. Her husband's name was Malon Mahalon. Where do you get that from, Mr. Hurley? In Ruth chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 10. 10. That's good. All right, so when you look in Ruth chapter 1, all it does, it gives the two boys' names, Malon and Chilion, and then it gives the two girls' names that were married, but then it never says who was married to who, and then it says both the boys died, and both of the daughters, or both the, the wives are now widowed, and if you just left off there in chapter 1, you don't know whether that Ruth was married to Malon or Chilion until you get to Ruth chapter 4, whenever Boaz is talking about it and is referring to the wife of Malon being Ruth. So yeah, alright, so we know her husband. Is that, her, is that the only husband's name? She married Boaz. Okay, she married Boaz. That's later on in chapter 4, right? Alright, so she has two husbands. She was a Mo- Moabite? She was a Moabite. Why does that matter? You don't know. Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. Alright, what's in Deuteronomy 23, Charles? God says that Moabites and Amalekites will be a part of the part of Israel. Okay, so in Deuteronomy twenty-three, um, you could go back and find that in verse three, where the Moabites are barred from um, joining the assembly of the people of God. Does you, does, you know why? Because they attacked them. Wonder what? Or no, they wouldn't let them pass through the land. <laughs> so it says in verse four and verse yeah. five. <laughs> 
<laughs> you were really close, Charles. You were really close. Okay, so you, you, I think and the Amalekites are right there in the same ballpark. All right, so it says in verse 4 and verse 5, the reason why they weren't going to be allowed to be adjoining an assembly is because they did not provide bread and water for God's people when they were on their way from Egypt to the promised land and they passed through the land. They didn't, they didn't provide provisions for them. And so they, they didn't. So that was one of the reasons that God had a grudge against them. And then he also says there in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that the other reason, the second reason is, is because they hired Balaam. Anybody remember who Balaam is? A prophet. Anybody remember where we're talking about in the Bible? Numbers. No, no, yeah, okay. Numbers 22. That's right. Okay, so Numbers chapter 22. All right, you have the Jewish people, the people of God, and they're coming through the plains, and the Moabites get scared because they just saw Moses and the Israelites whoop up on the Amalekites, and so they're like, Where next? So they got scared, so they went and hired this prophet named Balaam and said, Hey, you need to come over here and curse these people. And that's where you get Balaam and his donkey. The King James doesn't translate it donkey, but in modern translations we we translate it donkey. Alright, so Balaam and his donkey, you get the story about that. Alright, but then Balaam gets up there and he looks at the king and the Moabites and he says, I'm just going to say what God tells me to say. And he's like, whatever you got to do, just curse them. And then he gets up there and he blesses them. So you can go back to Numbers chapter 22 and you can find this story about how uh, three times, or four times, three times, three times, Three times he blesses them, and finally the king of Moabite said, Get out of here. All right? But God hadn't forgotten. So in Deuteronomy 23, God says, The reason why the Moabites are off limits is because they did not provide for God's people, and they hired Balaam to come and prophesy against God's people. So that would be a reason why her being a Moabite would be significant. Where do the Moabites even come from? <coughs> Lot? Do you remember where? The daughter. The daughter? Do you remember like, where in the scripture? Genesis 19. Genesis 19. All right, so in Genesis 19, you're around verse 33. All right, you remember? So uh, Lot and his wife and his two daughters and potentially two son-in-laws are sitting there in Sodom. Remember? Two angels come down, say, you got to get out. He tries to dwaddle, tries to linger around. So finally, they grab a whole lot, the wife and the two daughters, and they hoof it out of town. Fire, sulfur comes down, consumes, remember, town of Sodom. Wife looks back to see if her favorite china got destroyed, and she turns to the pillar of salt. Remember that? So then Lot and his two daughters then go and hide out in a cave. They're up there in the cave, and the two daughters conspire to have children. But... The only person around that fit the necessary needs was the father. So they got dad drunk on night one and then night two. And the result was both daughters ended up having children. And one of the descendants was the Moabites. So the Moabites are the descendants of an incestual relationship with Lot and his daughter. So, why do I bring all that up? So if it says, when you get start reading about here in Ruth chapter 1, and it talks about that whenever Elimelech and Naomi, that they go down to Moab, if you're a reader a couple of thousand years ago, you're looking at this going, no 
way. It'd be like somebody from Wilson moving to Luther. <laughs> Why? Why would you ever do that? It's like, no, no way. They can't do that. And then they come along and say, oh, yeah, they moved to Luther. And then they married girls from Jones. And you're just like, oh, no, could not happen. No way, Jose. I mean, it's just like, if you're reading this, now you and I, in our Western minds, so we read it and we're just like, eh, okay, whatever. We just got names here that are hard to, hard to pronounce, names that we're not familiar with. But in that time, this was a huge, huge, huge deal. Because if God said the Moabites were out, then why do we see the Moabites coming back in? There's questions. We'll get there. So who was she? So she had a husband named Malon. He died. He has in-laws, right? This is uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 2. The in-law, the in-laws, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi. All right, so that's his mother and father, um, or her mother-in-law and father-in-law. We know later in chapter 4 and verse 13, she gets married to Boaz. What else do we know about her? Sons? Do we know her parents' names? Do we know any of her relatives' names? She had a son named Obed. She had a son named Obed. Right? So you get that out of uh, uh, chapter 4 and verse 17. So she has Obed. Alright? Anything significant about him? Grandfather of David. Grandfather of David. Alright? So, I mean, he's got some, he's got some chops. Right? Alright? So it tells you there in verse 17 of chapter 4 that it kind of lays out the lineage and lets you know that Obed was the father of... Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David is which number king? Second. He's the second king of Israel, okay? So it kind of gives you a picture, okay? Do we know anything else about who she was? Where she grew up? She was uh, exiled to Moab. Well, she was actually from Moab. She was actually, I mean, she was, that's where we assume she grew up. We assume that she was from Moab. Anything else we know about her? Okay. Alright, so let's ask the question, well, why do we know about her? Okay, so we, factual information, but then the story. So there's a story that is here, four chapters. Why do we know about Ruth? Why is Ruth in the Bible? Because she went with her mother-in-law. Okay. Her character. Her character. Alright. So you've got Elimelech, Naomi, two sons, famine. They decide to leave Bethlehem in the land of Judah. They head down to Moab. Was that like next across the street? Is that like next door? Does anybody know? Other side of the Dead Sea. So they had to go all the way over, back over to the east, through the land of the Ammonites, and then down south into the, to the land of Moab. All right, so now they get down there, and, they, and, they, and how long were they down there? Does anybody remember? Ten years. Ten years. Ish. Now we don't know exactly, it just says ten years later. He, and he's reading, he's reading. So that was verse four of chapter one. They lived there about ten years. All right, so they get down there, and Limelech dies. Well, Naomi's like, okay, no big deal. They got my two sons. Well, then it doesn't tell us in which order. It doesn't tell maybe a syn- maybe they synchronized it. I don't know. But then the two sons die. So now you've got a widow and two daughter-in-laws that are also widowed. And so then she decides, okay, um, I've heard they got food back in Bethlehem. So Naomi picks up and she leaves. Is it just her and Ruth to take off? No. No. 
So originally, it was going to be Naomi and Ruth and Orphar. 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 Whatever. Orphar. Orphar. Orpha. 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 Okay, so they go. Eventually, Orpha turns around and goes back home. So now you got Naomi and Ruth. And they land there in Bethlehem. And what happens? They're poor. They're poor. They show up. Dirt poor. So then... It's only four chapters. And you could already read it by now if you've just been reading while we've been talking. So... What happens? So Ruth went and worked in Boaz's field. Yeah, so the barley harvest was on. So they're needing to eat. And in that times, the way that it worked is uh, Matt Whitna has a field of barley. He would go around and as he would harvest the barley, the far corners that were the hardest ones to harvest, he would leave. And the deal was, is they would go around and they would harvest all the stuff that was normal, but then the corners were left for the impoverished. The the corners were left that if you wanted to go out and feed yourself, it was harder, manual work, but you could go out and there was a provision left for you. In addition, as they're going through, and if any seeds of the barley or any seeds of the wheat would fall to the ground, they would leave them, and that was kind of the opportunity for the impoverished, the poor, those in poverty, they could come along and they could glean for themselves out of the peripheral, if you will. So that is what's going on here. So you have Ruth, and she is not just showing up, flaunting out there on the barley field and saying, my barley, sir, but she's not coming out and doing that. She is acting as one of the impoverished. She's acting as one of the lowliest of lows, and she's out there scrounging around for whatever she can find to be able to keep her and her mother-in-law alive. So when you're reading this, don't think, hey, she went out there and she, you know, and had her entourage and her servants. No, she's out there in the corners and she's having to harvest the plant and then she's having to go out and thresh or beat the plant and yield the plant and do all these things because that's the only way they stayed alive. So as you're reading Ruth, you're thinking this woman, Harold talked about it, her character and what the things that she's doing. So she's working. This is a Ruth chapter 2 and verse 2. She's working to provide for Naomi. And then you get down to chapter 2 and verse 8 and she catches the eye of Boaz. Now was Boaz good looking? How do you know? Because I was there when he was born. <laughs> Jeez. I believe it. Because I sit in my I believe it. All right, so do we know? Was he good looking? Was he not good looking? We don't know, do we? We have, we have no idea. I have suspicions just because he's an older man, he's a single man. It's like, you know, what's going on? I don't know. It's just one of those things. I'm interested in meeting Boaz someday. I'm just kind of interested, just getting curiosity satisfied. All right. So she's out in the field and she's gleaning. Boaz shows up, Boaz shows up to see how the work is going on. He sees that woman over there, asks his servants, who is that woman? And they say, well, that is Ruth the Moabitess that came back with Naomi. And so he ends up giving her favor. And he ends up saying, hey, we'll take care of you. You won't be harassed. You will have plenty. There will be room for you to glean. There will be room for you to take care of whatever you need to take care of. So, that's how the story goes. So that is in chapter 2 where Ruth meets Boaz. And you're just like, well, that's cool. They get to the end of the barley harvest. Then starts which harvest? The wheat harvest. So you get to the end of the barley harvest. You start the wheat harvest. And halfway through the wheat harvest, Naomi gets this idea and says, hey, 
why don't you go woo and wed the man? It's my, that's my paraphrase. So it's not, it, woo's not in there. So she, she says, why don't you go do that? So what happens? She goes, this is chapter 3 and verse 9. Boaz is out there in the threshing floor where they're threshing the wheat. It gets late. He's tired. His belly's full. He's cheerful. He's happy. He lays down. Goes to sleep somewhere in the middle of the night. She comes and uh, she lays down at his feet. About midnight he wakes up and there's a woman at his feet. And he's like, what? They have a conversation about what is going on. And she says, hey, you're my redeemer. Spread your wings over me. Some people, some people will look at this and they will interject physical romance. I wasn't there. I, Miss Scotty was. I wasn't there. No, I right? wasn't there when he was having the Okay, so I wasn't there. The text doesn't say anything happened inappropriately. The text doesn't say that there was any kind of well, misbehavior. He's a godly man. Yes. It's just sometimes you will hear people and they'll be discussing the story and they'll be like, huh, huh. Just be careful. Read the text plainly. The text says she laid at, her, laid at his feet. The text said that he uncovered the feet, that she uncovered the feet to just to raise attention to say, here I am, here I am. I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. Okay? So that's where the story goes. So she says, hey, Boaz, you know what? You are a redeemer. And so Boaz then in chapter 3 and verse 9 says, I will, or, this is chapter 3, verse 9. He asks, who are you? She says, I am Ruth. And then as the conversation goes on, He says he will redeem her. Does anybody remember what that means when he's talking about he will redeem her? Okay. (laughs) Sure. Okay. Okay. Yes. So that's that goes back to Leverett marriage, back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. So you go back to Deuteronomy 25 and you find where Moses is given provision that let's say, um, since I've already picked on him a couple of times, Carrie Whitna marries a woman. <laughs> What's so funny about that? I don't know. Okay, so he marries he marries a woman, and then he dies and does not ever have a child to perpetuate his lineage. So Leverett marriage there in Deuteronomy chapter twenty five says that his younger brother would then marry the same woman and have a child with the woman to perpetuate his older brother's name. So that's what Leverett marriage in a way of keeping that family line alive. So. When Naomi realizes it's kind of a quasi thing, Miss Lisa. So it's kind of a, hey, we want you to redeem us because you're our closest relative. So the land had been sold off to someone else. And so by inheritance of the distribution of all the tribal lands going back to the conquest of the promised land, that was family land. And so there was a, hey, Boaz, you are not our closest, but our second closest relative to come in and to have the right to buy that land and then to redeem. Ruth, and so you think, oh, this is a picture of leverage marriage. 
except for you look at the lineage of Obed, and the lineage of Obed does not go back through Malon, but it goes through Boaz. So it's kind of a quasi thing where, yes, he redeemed, he redeemed the land, and he even he redeemed that marriage, and he, and I, I read one commentary that said that he redeemed it so that Obed could then inherit his late father's property. So that it could still stay in the family. Yes. So it wasn't that it was going to perpetuate the name of Malon, but it did perpetuate the inheritance in the family land of Malon. Does that make sense? So it's kind of a quasi-levered marriage. And so whenever she goes to Boaz and says, Hey, Naomi and I do not have the money to buy the land back. We have no money to redeem it. But there was already that built in that if that land had been then transferred to someone else, family members showed up, said, Hey, I want the land back. They could redeem it at a fair market price. So that is where you get there in Ruth chapter 4. And Boaz comes in and redeems, redeems the land back to the family. And then says, hey, part of that, I am redeeming Ruth, and now she'll be my wife, and we'll have a child. And therefore, Obed, that family land still goes and stays in the lineage. So that is what Boaz does. Do you, outside the book of Ruth, do we have the name of Ruth anywhere in Scripture? Matthew. Matthew. Why? Because he's, she's in the genealogy of Mary or Joseph, one of the two. Yes. So she's in the genea- she is in the genealogy of Joseph. Because Matthew covers Joseph. Alright, so she is one of how many women listed in the genealogy? Four. 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 Okay, four. Well, are you including Mary? Yes. Okay, okay. Yes, Miss Lisa. Alright, so five if you include Mary. But I... Okay, okay. So the four. Joseph, it's on the four. So do you, do you, do you all remember the four? <coughs> Ruth. Okay, we got that one. I'm sorry. And, and we got Mary, number five. We got Ruth. Rahab. 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 Tamar. Tamar. The wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. Otherwise known as Bathsheba. Bathsheba, right? And so it's interesting for me. I think, and you don't have to think this way, but I think that when you think about the four women, all four women had um, questionable circumstances about why they got included in the lineage. I mean, Tamar, um, when she had her child, that wasn't um, the most, you know, greatest situation. Bathsheba, that wasn't the greatest situation. Rahab, that wasn't the greatest situation. I mean, just, it's cool. It's cool. All right, so... Ruth then has Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is father of David. That carries the lineage of Jesus. Any other reasons why we may know her in Scripture, why, may, why we may think about her in Scripture? Okay? So then what lessons? So we think about, why, what, think about who she was. We think about why do we know her. What are the lessons that she teaches us? Four chapters. What, give me some lessons. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Okay, where do you get that from, you think? Well, she stayed with her mother-in-law instead of going back to her own homeland. It's pretty faithful. Very. And we don't have any idea alone. She decided to serve her God. Mm -hmm. Yes. So she was a hard worker. She provided for the two of them. And she served her God. 
And it doesn't tell us. It tells us that her and Naomi got back during the barley harvest. We can kind of put a chronological timeline on the barley harvest and the wheat harvest and kind of have an idea. But we have no idea exactly the timeline from the death of Ruth's first husband, how long they stayed in Moab, how long it took to get from Moab back to Bethlehem, and then, I mean, exactly how many days she went out there and she served without the expectation of them to get married to Boaz, without the expectation that she'd be taken care of. She just is there being devoted and she's being faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, so yeah, faithfulness, that's, that's huge. Humility. Humility. Where do you get that from? Well, just her approach to her mother-in-law, her willing to serve. To me, and this is going to sound bad, but she didn't scheme. And in my old age, women tend to have that propensity to have a plan, to scheme. And she goes against that. Yeah. She shows up in Bethlehem and goes to work. She doesn't go out there and say, hey, Boaz, you need to feel sorry for me because the plight I'm in. She doesn't go out and try to draw attention to herself. She just goes out there and wants to be devoted and faithful to her mother-in-law. Boaz takes notice of her. And then to go and talk to Boaz, that was Naomi's idea. Ruth wasn't jockeying for position. She wasn't trying to catch anybody's eye. She was just doing what her mother-in-law had asked her to do. And she just was content with doing the next thing. Yeah. Humility. Well, has a footnote, um, Matthew um, 6.23, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yeah. And so that's what she was doing. That's right. I think it's interesting when you read, continue reading past chapter 1, after they get back to Bethlehem, when the people are talking about Ruth, they're referring to her as Ruth the Moabitess. So this is just me reading into it, okay? So this is, this is me, my personal opinion, my sanctified imagination, but it's like she showed up and everybody was like, she's one of them. And it was almost like she got classified, categorized, profiled. Because everybody just assumed she was a Moabitess. They, many people knew what Deuteronomy, many people knew that she was outside. It was scandalous that Elimelech and Naomi never left to begin with. And now here she is, and they're like, who, boo, hiss, who is she? Why is she here? She's not one of us. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She doesn't belong here. The sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. But Ruth just gets up, and she's like, cool, I'm going to go work. <laughs> cool, I'm going to go be faithful. Cool, I'm going to go do what I'm supposed to do. And I, you know. Do to what needs to be done. Do to what, yes, but maybe not you. I depend way too much on the opinion of other people. I mean, there's too many times it's like, you know, I'm more worried about what people think about me than what God thinks about me. And, and so many times we get, we get driven by that. We get driven by the, the popular opinion of people instead of the pleasure and the glory of God. And I just, in my mind, in my sanctified imagination, I just think Ruth's sitting there. People are talking about her. People are gossiping about her. People are speaking pejoratively about her. And all she was trying to do was be faithful to her mother-in-law and eat. <laughs> That's all she was trying to do. Be 
faithful to Mama Law and eat and live. So. I think there's a certain aspect of why it's courage. It takes courage to, number one, leave your family and go with her mother-in-law to a place that she didn't belong to, a people she didn't belong to. And she gets there and there is that potential prejudice against her. So there's a courage that that takes. And then to, to lay at the feet of of Boaz and wait for him to notice and to hope that it goes well. There's there's just courage there. A trust that I think sometimes is easy to overlook. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. I I see in current events, uh, Israel, support for Israel or not. All of all of that as a backdrop to this, and Ruth, uh, the Moabitess, uh, Hagar, these different Gentiles that play prominent roles in the history and the story of God's chosen people. A remark I saw online in relation to current events was if Israel is God's chosen people. Why are why isn't every why aren't all Christians converting to Judaism? Well, it's an ignorant statement, but that that thought is out there, and the idea of Israel being God's chosen people is in the mind collective mind of everyone is that that's a status symbol. It's not status. It was a vehicle that God used to bring blessing to the whole world. Yeah. And John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the Jewish people. Right. For God so loved the world. And this is a demonstration to me of his sovereignty to all people. Yeah. Yeah. His mercy and his grace. That's right. I think it's neat. You get to Ruth 1. Oh, in that first section that is there, it just sets it up in a very dark scenario. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 5. You just read through that, and then it's just like pain and agony and suffering and the darkest of dark moments in those first five verses. And then, as you read through the story, chapter 4, When Boaz is talking to Ruth, you see the goodness of God, how God had a plan and a purpose for Naomi, had a plan and a purpose for Ruth. You see God's providence, that He had already set these things in place, and He had already brought these things, that all He needed was them to be um, just be faithful and trustworthy. And then you see His timing, and you see where God had brought these things about in His timing and in His way, for His glory and for His name. Now you may say, what about the discomfort that Naomi and Ruth had by being widowed? Absolutely. I'm not taking anything away and I'm not trying to say that all their days were sunshine and roses. What I'm saying is, is that if you and I could go back to Ruth and Naomi and say, was it worth it to have you and your son in the lineage of Jesus, I am 100% confident both those ladies would say, you know what, in the moment we didn't understand. And in the moment it was painful. But looking back, it was worth every moment. 
Sometimes we remember that. In those dark days and in those cold days and in those lonely days and in those days that it seems like everybody around you is looking to attack you and criticize you, please remember. Please remember God's goodness, God's providence, and God's timing. Because we have no idea how God may use some of these moments in our lives to bring about His eventual plan for His glory and for our good. Ruth is a story about not just how God can still work in the darkest of moments, in the bleakest of moments. It's also a story about how God redeems what many would consider to be the unredeemable or the forgotten. How God then has a way of redeeming even those that do not deserve a single thought. God has a plan to redeem His people in His way and for His glory. So when we get up in the morning, say, what's the next thing? And I'm going to go be obedient and faithful Lord, and I'll let the results be up to Him. That's what Ruth did. She got up. She was faithful. She did the next thing and let God take care of the outcome. And I think for me personally, maybe even for you, if we would do that more often, (laughs) our lives might be more simpler. Our lives might be more peaceful. Our lives might be more content. If we, me, maybe you, would just give the morning and say, I'm going to do the next faithful thing and let God worry about the results. So, next week, Ananias is fire out of Acts chapter 5. If you have any other names that you want to see us talk about, let me know. Um, said we'll be looking at for this weekend for the weather and making sure that um, we're safe and we're taken care of so appreciate y'all being here tonight glad you were here <coughs> some lights got put in the sanctuary yesterday and today um, about 95% finished it's going to look a little different so when you walk in there it's going to be different and I know it's different for some of you like me I don't mind change, I just mind changing. <laughs> Some of you may be able to relate, okay? So maybe you can you can ask Jaylene or my kids. I don't mind change, I just mind changing. So it's different. And I know it's gonna be different. And uh, just be flexible and uh, be open-minded and we'll just see how we can use that to further ministry down the road. I think it's going to be good. I think it's just going to be, you know, just something different. And uh, instead of the first reaction going, I don't like that. (laughs) Bless your heart. Bless your heart. (laughs) Griping is not a fruit of the Spirit. Just remember that. All right. So, appreciate y'all being here. Let's pray. We'll go home. Mr. Peter, will you close in a word of prayer, sir? Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.